Welcome to Fruiting Body Podcast with your host, Brendan. We are back for part two of the interview with Steve Ross. Uh, go back, watch part one. It aired on Tuesday. There's a little bit more detailed introduction. So check that out, and we're going to get this started right away. Here we go. Let's go back, and not to sidetrack it, but to continue uh, on your story of um, this man. He was sailing up now, coming through Bangkok all the way up to Chiang Mai. So Tristan Jones uh, took this long tail full of disabled kids from Phuket. The first leg of the journey is what you were talking about, the elephant tracks across the Kra Peninsula, because he was laboring under the delusion that Delesseps had built the canal across the peninsula. Delesseps was hired by King Rama V. Delesseps uh-huh. built the Suez Canal. He was hired by Rama V to uh, His Majesty Rama V. Uh, to design a canal across the Kra Peninsula because at that time everybody had to go down around Malaysia and through the Straits of Singapore and there was all pirates down there. Where was that supposed to begin though? It's not on Sea Tamarat? I don't know where. It, well, on, depending on where you begin, either at Krabi or Nakhon and, okay. and, and, and over the spine and down the other side. And it was it's impractical. It was never built. Tristan thought it had been built and he goes across, he leaves Phuket and he goes, I guess this was Tristan. He would just make a decision and just follow it. It didn't matter what happened. And uh, he's a fascinating, fascinating, twisted, mad man. Uh, but he, 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 he got there and was, there were, like you say, it was nothing but elephant tracks over the peninsula. So he hired an elephant. He put his boat on the back of the elephant and he had the elephant carry it uh, wherever there wasn't water flowing. And he did find, he did go up a river and then had an elephant carry his boat to the next river and go up that river. He did go on water as much as he could uh, because the journey was supposed to be all on water. But where he had to, he'd put his boat on an elephant and walk through the jungle. I don't know if you've ever been on an elephant, but they have about 40 degrees of arc in their step and their backs go back and forth, back and forth and make you seasick. But he did that. He'd put his boat on an elephant. He'd put his boys in the boat and they ride their boat on the back of an elephant across the, the Kra. Well, they One, made it. Well, eventually they did make it to Chiang Mai, and they made it across the peninsula, but it was uh, it was on those same elephant trails. So they were still there. I mean, he would have done that in 80, 79, 80, I think, is when he did that. And for a long, long time down at Rawai, they had that long-tailed boat on a plinth. He gave it to the Phuket government, and they... You know, it was a tourist attraction. People used to go take selfies in front of Tristan is, Jones. Is it still oh, down God, there? No. no. I imagine somebody stole it, take it fishing. Uh, <laughs> or somebody pulled it down to put a hotel there or something, a, a restaurant. Because so all of that's... This whole area, um, when you're coming in, like Kata, um, the Club Med is there. So this is primarily where these hotels are as well. Now, was Rawai developed or how did it differentiate from like, you know, the 80s, 90s to today? Well, Rawai, I'll tell you what, because it's been a real, uh, if I can use the word, a real mindfuck coming back here. And that's why I don't live on Phuket. That's why I live on Turtle Beach. It's just too jarring and disconcerting to be here. It's like you were in love with a girl in high school, just absolutely head over heels. The two of you never hooked up. You went out in the world. You did your things, and then you meet at your your fortieth high school reunion, and she's you I'm, don't recognize her. She's a me- she's a meth she's addict. A me- yeah, exactly. She's lost all her teeth. <laughs> she's got one eye. Whatever. And, so and that's your that's what Phuket is happening. Yes, yes. 
I mean, the first time I came here, it was a, I had to run away. It was a psychic shock. It was because I mean, it has not been developed with any plan. The fact that Patong was rebuilt after the tsunami exactly the way it was before the tsunami, mm. it's, it's madness. But Rawai, Rawai is probably the place that reminds me the most of what it was in the 80s because it was a strip of, of restaurants and across the road, all of those restaurants had, had a paved area and tables out there on the beach or, or, or adjacent, beach adjacent, because you can't build on the beach here. It's Tiluang, it's the king's land. All the beaches are king's property. Uh, so you can't actually build, I think it's within, it's supposed to be 10 meters of the high tide mark or something like that, nothing taller than a coconut tree. Yeah, yeah. But at any rate, in Rawai, they've, they've stuck to that, and that's what it is today. It's a strip of, of restaurants and then a little two-lane highway and then all of these outdoor dining areas. And because their, their dining has always been set up outdoors, they've survived COVID very well, I think. You don't see the shuttered shop houses. You don't see the, the burned out husks of what used to be a restaurant three years ago. You don't see that as much, I think. And again, this is my subjective perception. Uh, and Rawai, that, that strip of once you're within sight and smell of the ocean, around the bottom of the island, and then at the end of it, at uh, what's it called, Nikita Bar, you make that left, you come back up toward Phuket Town. That whole strip along the water there looks, sounds, and feels like it did. And, and of course, the menus haven't changed in 100 years. They're selling the same food. You can get the same food there. I don't, I'm sure the prices are different. Well, it's like a fishing village. Almost. I mean, they have the pier out there. The fishing boats yeah, are all lined up. And because up. it's a mud flat, because it's a very unattractive beach, the whole eastern side of the island, all those beaches suck. It's, it, yeah. They're all shallow mud flats. Uh, but that's where all the fishing industry has been pushed because the west side beaches, the pretty beaches, they've pushed out all the long-tail boat fishermen and the trawlers uh, to, make, you know, to, to make room for jet skis and parasailing and uh, surf lessons, surfing lessons. And so all of that now has moved around the bottom of the, of the, the island and to the east side of the island. And, uh, and that's where you find uh, uh, the Burmese camps. Uh, but that, because that beach there is still uh, very shallow and muddy and unattractive, uh, there's a lot of the working fishing boats still tie up there. And that's exactly the way it was. Now... Since the time you were here, obviously the prices of certain things have gone up. So to chat a little bit about that, and you just said it with the Burmese working camps, um, the price to hire a Thai person, it goes up. So like any country, you cannot afford it. Like Singapore, they bring in the Bengalis. Here, they started bringing the Burmese. When you were here, were they still, did they have these Burmese work camps or no. the Thais doing it themselves? Oh, the Burmese were working uh, in the rubber groves. Because tapping, uh, uh, carving the rubber trees is a terrible, terrible job. It's a horrible job. Nobody should ever have to do that job. Uh, but people always have. So the Burmese have always tapped the rubber here. And various other agricultural uh, pursuits. My, my father-in-law, my ex-father-in-law, uh, at the end of his life, after he quit government, uh, he took all the money he'd made from bribery and bought acres and acres of pineapple plantation. And then the tsunami came and put two feet of salty sand on top of his plantation and wiped him out in the morning and carried away his two Burmese workers. The two guys who used to tend the pineapple plants just disappeared. His house disappeared down to the foundation. Where would have that been at? Oh, Ranong, 
I'm sorry, Renong. Yeah. Okay. Up the coast. So, but in those days, uh, like we had a nanny, we had a Burmese nanny uh, when my children were very small. She was a terrific, terrific girl. She was 13, and she came out of the rubber groves in Renong, and she was just really, really happy not to have to tap rubber, to sleep inside a house with mosquito netting, uh, you know, screens on the windows, to not be chewed up by mosquitoes all night. That was like heaven to that girl, 13-year-old Burmese. And, of course, uh, we got her because my wife couldn't keep any domestic staff. She was a terror to work for. And this girl couldn't run away. A Burmese girl, a teenager, a Burmese teenage girl was very much at risk in Thailand in those days. Uh, the cops would get her and, and use her in a cell and then sell her to a brothel. And, you know, nobody cared. If the newspapers heard about it, they didn't care. That's not news. Now, it's difficult. I've had this experience many times. Go sit down in a restaurant and try to speak Thai to the waiter, and he doesn't understand because he's Burmese. Yep. Everywhere you go. Uh, if somebody's selling something to tourists now, he's Indian. Or I suppose, I don't know, maybe Bangladeshi or something, but South Asian, not Thai anymore. And certainly wait staff, any kind of wait staff. The guy who carries your bag to your room in the hotel, uh, the person making your food probably in the kitchen, certainly the person bringing your food to the table. Uh, I think in my subjective experience, again, Nine times out of ten, uh, that's no, and that, that's you see it all at the beach bars here. It's mostly it is Burmese staff, but yeah. So in the eighties, it it was still no. ties. And oh, all time. interesting. Yeah, yeah, and <laughs> you know, I've I've been to Padia and I've been to Patong, foreign hookers. No, no, no way a Russian girl could come and hook on Phuket in the nineteen eighties. No way an African girl could come and hook in Padia in the nineteen eighties. And pimps. The big scary pimps, the big Russian and, and Ukrainian and, and African pimps, man, that's that's I, that that was a that was uh, a shock to come back and see that because the labor market here in any industry is very very protective, right? I did two movies here, and the hoops I had to jump through to get on the crew to work on movies here, uh, it's amazing, you know, to get any. I mean, one of the biggest illegal activities is selling work permits. We just had a big scandal here in the immigration department for selling uh, Burmese people uh, uh, work permits and 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 uh, work visas and things like that, and the and they're all protected. The idea you you would no more have a Russian hooker than you'd have a Russian tuk tuk driver, you know. It's that it was that close that I mean, you know, you you're taking money out of the mouth of a Thai hooker, and and every cop has got a cousin or a niece or a sister-in-law or an ex-wife who's doing that job. And you're taking money out of his family's pocket. So no, there, there, were, there was nothing like that. No, no white women working in prostitution in, in Thailand in the 80s that I ever saw. I'm sure Thai politicians in Bangkok, army generals, movie producers, they probably hired white women for that job. But on the street, publicly, in a touristy place, just like you don't see, and forgive me if this is a sensitive subject, you can cut it out. There is underage prostitution in Thailand. You don't see it on Soi Bangla. You don't see it on Walking Street. They're really, really concerned with their image abroad. They lose face when Time Magazine does a story about underage hooking in Thailand. 
So it's there, but it's really in the back room. And for a Falang to find it would take a lot of effort and a lot of risk. Because every single step along the way, there's a Thai person who wants to take a picture of you with that little girl on your lap, and then he's got you for the rest of your life, right? So it's fraught with danger, and it's really super rare. Uh, and, and, you know, back in the day, uh, uh, any sort of foreign sex workers would have been really out of, out of public view. You, you wouldn't have seen anything. Now, yeah, it's. I mean, now you go down Bangla, it's smack in your face. You got Russian yeah. strip clubs. I yeah. mean, it is what it is now. I mean, kind of, I moved here in 2016, but I was probably coming here since 2008. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, I've seen it change as well. Definitely not as much as you. But, um, I mean, it's everywhere. You, you see yeah. it at, at the beach clubs. I mean, you'll, for example, you'll go to certain beach clubs here. Uh, usually it's in December, and... These beach clubs at the counters, they're full of blonde white women mm -hmm. around the table with their purses, and they're all talking to each other, but from like a meter distance. And well, we know what they're doing. Yeah. Well, I I'll tell you an embarrassing story. Uh, maybe two months ago, I was I was I had come back fairly recently, and I spend much as much time as I can up in Turtle Beach, and I don't come down to Phuket unless I have to. And uh, I was in Rawai. I often stay for free in a friend's uh, guest room in Rawai. And uh, I, in the morning, I just went out to get coffee. And I parked the motorcycle on that beach road. And uh, I was outside the 7-Eleven. And this really good-looking blonde young woman pulled up next to me on a motorcycle. And she wasn't parking the bike. She stayed on the bike with the motor running. And she said, uh, good morning, how are you? That's a terrible Russian accent. <laughs> I apologize to all our Slavic listeners. But she greeted me, real friendly, big smile, big sparkling eyes. And I said, oh, I'm, I'm fine. Thank you. And she engaged me in conversation. And I thought, oh, my God, here's a young, beautiful woman interested in me. She's striking up a conversation. She likes the look of me. And, and I'm going to respond. I'm going to try to be charming. And, and pleasant and look wealthy, right? And, and I'm engaging with this woman, and I swear to God, it took my, usually, my hooker radar is, is pretty, pretty good. It took me, I swear to God, two minutes to realize, wait a minute, this, this girl's on the job. She's on the clock. She's, she's, she's punched into her work. She's, she's, she's a hooker, a white hooker on Phuket. And in my head, there's this cognitive dissonance and bells ringing and, and like I'm dizzy for Where, a where was this exactly? Rawai. Oh, just Rawai. outside the 7-Eleven. Okay, okay. I parked my motorcycle and she just drove up and stopped. She saw a lone farang yeah. and, and, and she stopped. She thought I was a tourist and she wanted to... She was looking for trade, you know. Oh, the ruble wasn't doing too good, and yeah. banks were closed not long I ago. Guess so, so there we go. And but I was so unfamiliar with the concept of the foreign hooker in Thailand that I, for a moment, thought this young woman was interested in me. Yeah, well, not, go not Steve's best moment. Oh, that's that's my fallback if this podcast doesn't work. So. Is it? You know, that's well, you, why you, you just said I was gorgeous. So yeah, I'm that's not, why you're I'm in the gym. Now, yeah. yeah, sure. Um, to jump forward now, there's two excellent interviews done by Pete from Tyrish Times. Um, and in those interviews, Pete really, uh, especially the first one that he did, he 
digs deep into who is Steve Ross and Steve Ross, you know, why you went back to the to the U.S., what happened exactly. And now we don't dive too much into the details. So if you want a general overview of, of what happened, I, I highly suggest to the viewers, uh, check out uh, Tyrish Times by Pete. And you can just check out Steve. You could type in Steve Ross, Tyrish Times. There's two episodes. One they had to do on Zoom, which is the one before he came back to Phuket. And the other one, he, you, I guess you were visiting at that time into Phuket. Um, and that was in Bangkok. Now... Um, the I have a couple questions from that interview, and we don't need to go on on it too too long. But my question was: you never got really into the granular why you made this woman so bad as she seems. Specifically, are you able to explain to the audience? And again, first go watch this. Um, why was this a nightmare? Well, first of all, uh, the name is spelled R O S S E. If you're going to look for Steve Ross, thank you very much. But it's not R-O-S-S. And it's not the tuba player. The world's most famous tuba player is Steve Ross with an E. And uh, that's not me. Don't, don't, he's all over the internet. Don't worry. He won't uh, be the, the most famous yeah. that long. You're coming thank up. You. You're coming through. All right. So memoir. I write memoir. I've got uh, six books, I think, at the moment for sale on Amazon. I used to write a very popular newspaper column. Here in Thailand, there was once a uh, billboard over Sukhumvit with my face on it uh, for about five and a half years. I was a very popular columnist uh, in this country before there was an internet or there was anything else to do. And uh, so the book we're talking about is called Leaving Thailand, and it's a collection of, of essays. It's memoir. It's about Steve Ross. It's about why Steve made the decisions good and bad, that he made, and what were the results of those decisions, and has Steve successfully accepted responsibility for those decisions and the way his life turned out. In that book, my ex-wife uh, is painted in a very unflattering light. Again, life is experienced subjectively. She is painted in that light because that is the light I see her in. My children are painted in a much different light. The people I have worked with in my life, other women who I have loved, are painted in much different lights. Uh, mostly kind of a, a sepia glow of nostalgia. Uh, but yes, yeah, she is the villain of the piece because that is how I see her. And she is welcome to write her own memoir and, and tell the world what she thinks of Steve Ross. She, as I... As I say in the interview with Pete from last December, uh, the things she said about me, the lies she told about me in the Johnson County family court uh, cost me uh, my children. I, I was looking for shared custody of my children. I didn't get that because she did things like sign an affidavit that said, uh, Steve brought me to America to be his sex slave. There's a piece of paper in the Johnson County Courthouse, which is public record, available to anybody who wants to walk in there and, you know, my future biographers walk in there and, and, and look up the, the record of my divorce, in which she swore that I brought her to, to America to be my uh, sex slave. We did not touch each other after the birth of my second child. We didn't have any sex life in, in America to speak of at all for the greater part of the time we lived together in America, we, we lived in separate rooms. Uh, we didn't speak to each other. We didn't make eye contact. But she swore 
that she was she was brought to America to be my sex slave and a bunch of other lies. So the things the, the the negative light in which she painted me, she painted me in the courts in a way that that cost me my children. Uh, so I I wrote a memoir. It's an honest memoir. There's nothing in it that is not true. Uh, and she is the villain of the piece. Well, I think there's probably a lot of people similar to yourself that were in here in the 90s or the 2000s that have gone through these experiences we all hear these stories of you know they they have this happily happy life happy wife great family they're going back to the u.s and maybe the thai lady just wants to get the passport and now it's the end of the world and they lose everything however you wrote a book on that now no that's not my story at all dude no no i mean not the, at all. Not even close. Not meaning no. it in that in that light. I mean, the story of you know, just you're shown one thing and you get the other. Now, I know, I know your story. The main part I watched this back was that it was more. It wasn't a relationship about love. It was no. more of a business relationship. Yeah. So, but what actually led you guys going back to the U.S.? Like, what was the purpose of that besides for your kids and the education? Nothing. It Nothing. was for the kids. Just for the kids. Yeah. Well, I mean, it was triggered by me uh, losing my job at the boathouse. And yeah. I just want to say, first of all, she came from a wealthy family. She could have had a passport and gone anywhere in the world. She didn't need me for that. She made three times as much money as I made. Mm. We were both public relations managers at swanky hotels. Her hotel paid her three times what my hotel paid me. Uh, she, she, no, she didn't marry me. She was college educated. She had a degree in accounting from Ron Klang University. Uh, there was none of that, uh, typical. She didn't deceive me. I knew exactly who she was when I married her, but we married without love. We married because for personal reasons, we both were getting on in years and we thought we needed to be married. Uh, I had a wild hair up my ass. I wanted children at 36. I decided I wanted to be a father. <clears throat> so, yeah, I said, you know, we were sleeping together, and I kind of said, uh, hey, you want to get married? She said, yeah, how's Thursday for you? Mm. And we got married. And, and like anything you do on the spur of the moment without thinking about it, uh, it was fine when we were in Thailand, and I could go to the soapy massage, and she had a brand-new car, and she had the status of being married to a farang, and she had two beautiful children and a nanny. She never, neither of us ever changed a diaper. We had nannies. We had Burmese nannies for that. You know, and everything was fine. Once we went to the States, excuse me, and Steve didn't have soapy massage anymore, and she didn't have a maid anymore, and we had to start changing diapers, that's when the shit hit the fan. That's how how quickly did that happen to turn oh. things turn sour? Before, <laughs> before, <laughs> on the plane, on going the over the Pacific Ocean. Yeah, I, I mean, think, like, is. to rephrase that, what I was saying before, I didn't mean it in that light. Like, I, I read the story. I understood that it wasn't for love. But then a lot of foreigners, they, they see one thing one way, and, and everyone has their own story of why things go bad. But it seems that it's more often than none um, – coming from it could be from china i've heard the stories there it could be from philippines it could be from thailand but there's always something doesn't go right when they go back home so and i understood that it wasn't for love in that sense but when you went back home it was very quick on the plane where things just wait a minute what the fuck are we doing how did you feel for the next 25 years before you came back here did you feel like mentally you're in a jail cell oh yeah again read the book uh Every single, I mean, first of all, so I went back 
and I got a job writing advertising. I thought I was going to go back and be a writer because here, like I said, there was a billboard over Sukhumvit advertising Steve Ross as a writer. I went back to Iowa City, Iowa, because my mother gave me a house across the street from an elementary school. Beautiful town in the Midwest, college town, university town. I said, I'm going to go back to Iowa, be a writer. Well, the University of Iowa is the home of the University of Iowa Writing Workshop, the most famous graduate program in creative writing in, in the world. And every bus driver is working on his third slim volume of verse. Every waitress has got a novel that she's sending out to agents. There's writers, you can't throw a rock and not hit a, hit a writer in Iowa City, Iowa. So there was no writing work. There's no magazines or newspapers published in Iowa. So I ended up being a medical transcriptionist, which means sitting absolutely still in a cubicle and a doctor speaks into a microphone and you type what he says and you do that for eight hours. Death, doom, disease. Eight hours a day. You don't move. You don't move any part of your body except your fingers, and you're paid by the line of type. So you don't get paid. If you stop typing like this and crack your knuckles, you're off the clock. You're not getting paid until you put your hands back on the, on the keyboard and you start to type again. Uh, I was very good at it. I'm very verbal. I'm very wordy. I'm a hypochondriac. I'm very interested in physical health. Uh, and all the terrible, painful, disgusting things that can go wrong with the human body. So I found it fascinating. But it gives you a lot of time to think. You know, after you've done it for, you know, I did it for 22 years after I got fired from uh, writing advertising because I made a million-dollar client cry in a meeting. What would you say to him? It was a her. Oh. And I told her that she, the tagline on her threefold uh, brochure uh, was a lie. And she was not delivering, you know, advertising and marketing, it's all about promise. And uh, what she was promising the consumer on the front of her stupid little three-fold brochure, uh, she was not delivering. And I wouldn't let it go. And it was at the end of an eight-hour meeting, and I hadn't opened my mouth in the whole meeting. And I'd still be working there today, except at the end of the meeting, as everybody's getting up and packing to leave, uh, the account executive said, Steve, you haven't said anything. Do you want to add anything before we leave? I said, Yeah. Uh, your tagline's a lie. Boom, everything stops. Everything stops. She says, what do you mean? And she's like halfway through packing up her briefcase. And I won't bore you with the details of the language, but the language, it was, I was right. Literally, what she was promising, she couldn't deliver. But that was a tagline that had been created by the agency I was working for 10 years before, and she'd never had a consumer complain. And I, at the end of an, and she had four hours to drive back to Chicago, I wouldn't let her leave that conference room. By God, I was going to get her to admit that I was right, because I was right. I'm still right. And <laughs> finally, finally, she just bursts into tears because she's exhausted. She drove four hours to get to uh, Cedar Rapids, Iowa. She had an eight-hour meeting, and she had four hours in front of her of highway driving to get home. She just wanted to leave, and I wouldn't let her leave. She gathers up all her shit and her and her. her purse and her uh, uh her notebooks and her and, and and in her arms and she says we're done here and she runs for the ladies room and all the female employees ran with her because mm. that's how women do they all go to the bathroom and cry together and all the men are sitting in that room there's like there were 20 of us in that meeting and there's 10 men left and they're sitting around that table looking at me they couldn't believe what i'd done to this day i can't believe what i've done and there were only three ad agencies in eastern Iowa at that time. And within an hour, everybody at all three agencies knew what Steve Ross had done because it was beyond the pale. And that's probably one of the biggest clients in the, the, 
Oh yeah, a million dollar client. And she had been with him 10 years. She had given $10 million worth of business to that company. And I come along and say, the tagline we created for you that you've been using for 10 years ago is a lie, right? Yeah. Why? I could, it was the end of the meeting. She was packing to leave. I could have just let her go, but I couldn't let it go because I was right, God damn it. So this is the the story of Steve Ross. Ross's life, maybe uh, the tongue is quicker than it should be and it oh, I've, leads I've, to trouble. Oh, everything, every relationship in my life, every job in my life, every career. I've had half a dozen careers where because did this, I'll open my mouth. And where did this quick-witted, did this stem from, did this come from the family side or is this all you? Well, my family is all academics. I'm the only person in my family who doesn't teach something. Uh, but I have an adenoma in my right adrenal gland so since at least adolescence, uh, my right adrenal gland has been pumping adrenaline into my blood 24-7. Uh, now I take uh, medicine for that because my blood pressure, I was uh, 200 over 140 when I went back to the States in 97. I hadn't seen a doctor the whole time I was here. And I went back and got a job in a cubicle with, with insurance. And I established care with a practitioner and... Uh, he took my blood pressure and he said, I don't know why you're still alive. So I've had two heart attacks. Yep. I've got seven stents in my coronary arteries. I have to carry a bottle of nitroglycerin with me everywhere I go. And so that that adenoma and that adrenal gland, I think, is responsible for a lot of my behavior problems. You know, school was hellish for me. I was always in trouble at school. Every job I've ever had, every relationship I've ever had, uh, and I'm OCD, profoundly OCD. So again, if I get an idea in my head, if we're talking and I think I'm right, I won't stop. I won't stop talking until you say to shut me up. Yeah, all right, Steve, you're right. Mm. And I shut it like magic. I go back in the lamp. The genie goes but back. But nine times out of 10, 10 out of 10, are you right? If it's about language, yeah, 10 out of 10. Mm. Anything to do with language. And this, I've lost friends because... Somebody will post a meme on Facebook. And to me, the language is what's important. And if there's a clumsy sentence in that meme, I will call out the author of that meme for his clumsy sentence. Everybody else is looking at what the meme means. So if the meme is in support of uh, uh, what uh, uh, the ASPCA, a spay and neuter your dogs, and Steve says, you know, that's an incomplete sentence. The, the subject does not agree with the verb. People say, well, why don't you think we should spay and neuter our dogs? Right? They think they, people can't, nobody looks at language the way I do. And I edited medical records for 20 years, eight hours a day, five days a week. I cannot look at a sentence and not parse it. I have to deconstruct everything I read, which makes now reading for pleasure problematic. Uh, but it means that I react to things differently online. I don't give a rat's ass what the point of this meme is. If you're supporting Donald Trump or not supporting Donald Trump, I really don't give a fuck. But you had better use complete sentences, whatever you're doing. And I've lost friends. People unfriend me all the time because I point out, you know, there's a dangling participle. There's a, you know... Mm. Because that was my job. The difference, if a surgeon... I worked in surgery for a long time... And if a surgeon dictated uh, the left foot was prepped and draped in usual sterile fashion, which is how every uh, dictation on any surgical procedure begins, the organ, whatever it is, the abdomen, the foot, the hand was prepped and draped in usual sterile fashion. And I see on the paperwork that it was the right foot that was removed. 
but the doctors dictated the left foot. It was my job to point that out to the doctor before it goes in the record, right? Abducted, the limb was abducted instead of abducted. This kind of stuff, 15 milligrams of Demerol, he dictates 50. Well, 50 milligrams of Demerol will kill you. Uh. If a nurse reads that as a drug order and gives the patient 50 milligrams of Demerol and the patient dies, that's on me. That's not on the nurse. That's not on the physician. That's my bad. The physician will lose his license. The nurse will lose her license. I will lose my job. But the, the actual error is mine because I'm the editor. I'm supposed to catch that. So for 20-some years since I left the advertising agency, eight hours a day, five days a week, I was parsing medical terminology, parsing language. And you'd have Pakistani doctors, Chinese doctors, Japanese doctors, Korean doctors. You had to listen real hard because, you know, for Dr. Kim, the word atelectasis is pronounced <laughs> And you have to know Dr. Kim. You have to be able to, you know, oh, that's atelectasis. And it makes a difference. If the patient has yeah. atelectasis, you treat him differently than if he does not. And so that's what I did for 23 years, eight hours a day. So now I look at Facebook. If there's an incomplete sentence, I'm going to comment on that. I can't mm -hmm. stop. And this is uh, to, to segue into your YouTube channel on postcards from uh, Turtle Beach. I mean, this is a lot of the content that we'll find on there. It's, you know, into the mind of Steve Ross. Yeah. Um, now, before I, I really want to go into into your YouTube channel and discuss what I've saw. And I'll, I'm you. going to attempt to dissect an episode, let's say. Okay. Now, before we get there, um, uh, Pete from Tyrish Times, I, I talked to him earlier today and talked to Steve about this. Uh, Pete will most likely be doing a follow-up on, on Steve Ross to really dive into his return to Thailand and um, what he's been experiencing since he got here. Maybe they do that in December. I'm not going to be going into those that that content because um that's going to be part of that segment what i would like to go into first before we go into your youtube channel um when i first talked to you on the phone and then we had that that uh, facebook messenger meeting one thing that quickly came to mind steve ross is living and if I'm, i'll put it very bluntly living the nightmare and the fear that every furlang dreams about and wishes will not happen and what i mean by that is someone like myself i only have one fear and that's the fear to wake up in canada and say i'm not in thailand and i've had that nightmare numerous times where you're in your dream and you're like fuck i'm back home in canada and you can't get a flight back and you, you couldn't afford it or you can't get a boat and now or maybe you have a kid there's always something where you can't get back here you've lived that nightmare mm -hmm. yeah um before we go into the memoirs in the YouTube channel, could you comment on that fear of, you know, and, and conquering that fear? And now you're back here. There's a story there. Um, not a revenge story, not a vengeance story, but, you know, it's a part of you that's probably been missing for 25 years. Those 25 years of trying to get back here, what went through your head those 25 years? And finally, that emotion, that feeling, getting on the plane and saying, you're coming back here, this is where you're going to end your life. Can you just talk about like that whole experience that and leading up to that and bringing yourself back here? And then we're going to dissect um, right. um, postcards from Turtle Beach. So every single day for 25 years, from July 4th, 1997 until May 13th, 2022, 
I dreamed of coming back to Thailand. I worked in a succession of cubicles in windowless rooms in the basements of various uh, hospitals. <clears throat> My cubicles were always lined with old postcards, old John Everingham postcards of Thailand, particularly of Phuket. I had Buddhas uh, in my cubicles. Uh, there was never in Iowa or New Mexico or El Paso, Texas, there was never a decent Thai restaurant around. So there was no going out for a meal to remember what it was like in Thailand. And I did come back in 2008. I came back for two weeks in uh, 2018 and 2020. I came back for two weeks. And it was on the last day of that last visit in 2020 when I knew the next time I came, it would be for good. The nightmare would be over and the dream could begin. And then what, right? How much of it is really going to be like what you met? That was the interview with Pete. The first interview at Tyrish Times was the day before I flew out to begin the process of selling everything I had and packing up and, and, and coming back to, to Thailand. So that's a very emotional interview. And uh, we were in a beautiful setting. And it's, uh, it's, uh, uh, I, I go back every now and then and watch pieces of that because it's good to put myself back in that head where something you've been fantasizing about daily, something you've been dreaming about, something that you've been clinging to in order to survive what was happening in your personal life, now you're about to realize it. And that's a whole different kind of scary. I mean, almost, yeah, I lost sleep. You know, there were nights I was awake. There are videos on the channel that I made in America before coming out here. I took a road trip around America to say goodbye to my family because I hope not to go back to Was America. it one of those, did it ever enter your mind, be careful what you wish for? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, and, 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 and have a plan B. What if Steve comes back to Thailand after all of this hoping and dreaming and wishing and, oh, my God, you have to wash your ass with a squirt gun? What if he can't deal with that? Oh, my God, the food's so spicy. Oh, my God, you've moved to this place, Turtle Beach, where there are no other falang, where you can go a week without hearing English. What if you get lonely, right? What are you going to do then? Have a plan B. No, I don't have a plan B. I don't plan shit. You know, the best line in any Hollywood movie is Heath Ledger saying, do I look like a man with a plan, right? I don't. I have just been counting on it's all going to work out. So far, it has. Thank God. Knock on teak. Uh, it, ha it has been a tremendous four months since I've been back. I've enjoyed every minute of it. I'm so glad I did this. I feel so good where I am. Ask me again in a year, right? And what do you do? What do you do if the dream turns out to have been wrong? I don't know. I hope not to have to face that. Do you but think I'm, about that often? Not often, but it's there, like right now. It's, it's the answer to your question. And I spend a lot of time alone, a lot of time alone. But now I saw... Uh, so, so I have this, a lot of time to think. This is a good segue into your YouTube channel, Postcards from Turtle, uh, Turtle Beach. Um, now, for anyone wondering, where is Turtle Beach? It's up in Kaulak. It's, it's kind of near the Army base. And, and where they do the turtle hatchery. Yeah, Turtle Beach is anywhere from the Saracen Bridge to Kaulak. On the coast. Okay, that's what they're calling yeah. it. Okay. Uh, that's what I'm calling it. Uh, where I live, the 13 kilometers of beach where I live, is a turtle sanctuary. That is probably, you know, what you would think of as Turtle Beach. 
uh, the rest of the coastline has hotels and golf resorts and Muslim fishing villages and, and mangrove swamps and everything else. But where I live is 13 uninterrupted kilometers of undeveloped beach, not a business at all, not a restaurant. Is this kind of where, like, if you're going towards Calac, there's a certain part where if you don't make the right turn, you kind of just go yes. straight? Yes, You hit That's a dead-end beach. Yeah. And if you hit that end beach, you turn right. Yeah. And I've been lost there. And then you kind of hit, like... Like you said, that's the ranger? Yeah. Okay, I've, you, been, on, I've been there. Yeah, sure, okay. everybody has. Yeah. They just don't know what it is, and they never go back. Yeah. Uh, but it's, it, I spend a fair amount of time alone there, and there's plenty of time to think. And there are those moments when I'll be sitting uh, in my living room, reading a book, or watching Netflix, or whatever, and I'll look up and go, holy fuck, I did it here i'm actually here now what right there are those moments of revelation and insight and often that's a scary thing we don't spend a lot of our lives in deep thought and deep insight into our own selves uh and when it when it hits us it's kind of a shocking thing uh and i've never come up with an answer to you know now what well, all I ever dreamed about was being here. The YouTube channel has given me something that, that, that adds structure to my days. Was that born from Pete telling you, hey, you should start your YouTube channel? <laughs> it, it was born by a, a man who has become a very good friend named Roy Bott, who contacted me and said, you know, you're, you're, you're chatty. Uh, you should do a YouTube a YouTube channel, the dream had always been to come back and write the book that I was intended to write. The, the, I've written seven books so far. Uh, five of them are still for sale. Uh, I have always felt that that was all practice, that that was learning how to write. And I was meant to come back here to write the great American expat memoir. And the dream of coming back, that was always the centerpiece of it, the big book that I was supposed to write. Because, you know, for 25 years, I've spent every day typing. You don't go home then and type a novel, right? You don't want to look at words for the rest of the day. You don't want to think about language for the rest of the day. So I wasn't going to write anything at home. I write long 5,000-word book reviews for Facebook, but that I did that at work. That was just burning off energy at work. Uh, so I haven't felt like writing anything since I came back because I've been doing this YouTube channel and I work on it every day. I'll do something every day. I'll either edit or I'll go out and shoot. And for me, going out and shooting is basically get on the bicycle and ride into town. So let's catch everyone up to where we are now um, on the YouTube channel. First, could in your words, can you describe what is Steve Ross's YouTube channel? Well, it it says in the credits, this is either a cultural and spiritual pilgrimage or just an old guy's hobby. Uh, it's Steve Ross shooting with the cheapest phone that Samsung makes, editing with the software that came free with the laptop, uh, writing, producing, starring in alone. Because there's nobody... I, I try to include my neighbors as much as I can, but none of them speak any English, so I have to write lines for them in Thai. 
Uh, and I try to include them as much as I can, and I think I do a pretty good job because one of the things I criticize about the vlogosphere at the moment is that it's a, it's a white man's sausage fest. There's no Thai people in it unless they're hookers or waiters or tuk-tuk drivers. And I, so I try to include the people of Turtle Beach, my neighbors, and they're very, very happy. I'll tell you what, you make a Thai person happy, just point a camera at them. They love it. Absolutely love it. Call Thai Rupnoi. They immediately preen, right? They immediately, you know, oh, yes, yes, please take my picture. Doesn't matter who they are. They can be the roughest, meanest, nastiest looking guy on the block. Uh, you point a camera at him and he's like, how, what is your creative process? And uh, <laughs> let, let me follow up on that part um, uh, before our cameras die. Um, I watched the, the uh, now it's not a recent one, but it's more about cockfighting. And as mm. I was watching that, um, you had one, I don't, actually, this might have been a different episode because I've watched so many together that I'm, I'm kind of mixing them all up. There's one where you did the What I Love. I thought that was very interesting. And it's like we talked about, it's that, not sketch comedy, but a variety hour, variety mm -hmm. show. Um, where it can start with the what I love, but you've taken 20 takes. Is that planned out to the what I love part? Um, and to follow up with that, then the, the next part with the cockfights, you have all of a sudden 20 photos of different roosters. Where, where are you finding all these? Like, and is that planned? So as you can see, even I'm so lost on the content, but for some reason I want more. Well, thank you. I'm flattered. I, I'm flattered you think I have a process. Uh, I don't. It's very, creativity at this point in my life is very organic. I went to college, my degrees in theater. I worked in the show business as a prop man. I worked in the stage. I worked in the legit theater. I worked in film. Uh, so I've been behind the camera a lot. I've been, never touched the camera, wrong union. Uh, and I've been on stage. I love the stage. I love live performance, any kind of live performance. I still just love it. Uh, but I've never actually created, I've always been a technician in show business. I created on the page. I was a writer and I created on the page. This is the first time I've never, I never made any kind of film in college. I never made any kind of film growing up or, or until I came here. And well, actually it was a few weeks before I came here. I started making these videos in New Mexico about the process of finally quitting my job, retiring, applying for my social security and coming here. Uh, but it's all very organic. I'm learning as I go. And like I said, I have no tools. I have the cheap phone. I have a cheap editing package. I can't even split sound and image. I have to use, I can either mute it or use the sound that was there ambient when I took the, the shot. Uh, but that's all I can do. I cannot do voiceover and things like that. Uh, so it's all very rudimentary and all very childish and childlike. And I'm learning with each episode as I go. Uh, each one. So let, let's say the cockfights. So you've done mm -hmm. that. Uh, you've planned this as an episode about the cockfights. Now, when you're out, like, have you thought, okay, now I need to go find 20 pictures or are you just no, taking, no, 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 no. how does that work? I have the pictures first because I carry the phone with me everywhere I go. And like I said, I'll just get on the bike and ride out into the countryside. And you notice if you're looking, if you're aware, particularly if you're on a bicycle rather than a motorcycle, and you're just wandering aimlessly, I never have anywhere to go. I'm never, I never have an errand to run. Now, maybe I have a book to return to the library or something like that, but if I go get lunch or something. But other than that, I just wander aimlessly, and you start to notice things like, okay, uh, <laughs> you start to notice when the Buddha is used as decor 
which is really, really strange in this culture to have a Buddha on the table like that. Uh, you notice that everybody has got some kind of concrete child outside their house. There's these little greeting children that hold uh, signs that say, Yindi, Don Rapkun, I'm pleased to receive you, things like that, but not in the Muslim neighborhoods. You can always tell a Muslim neighborhood because there's no representation there's of no nature. dogs. There's no dogs, right? But there's no statues or pictures of human beings or animals or plants. They don't have these little concrete menageries, concrete chicken, a concrete pig, whatever, outside the house. They're not allowed. There's no representation of, of nature. That's why every mosque is decorated with lines of scripture and geometric designs. They're not allowed to paint a tree. They're not allowed to paint a dog. They're not allowed to paint a human being. So you can always tell, oh, and, and the Chinese neighborhoods always have uh, shrines on the floor and a shrine on the post on the southern corner, the southeastern corner of the house. They have these little metal red things. And so you start to notice trends like that, like the cocks, the ceramic cocks. I had always wondered, why? Why a chicken? Why? Why? Because they put them under the spirit houses. They put them in front of the Buddhas. They put them in front of sacred monk images. Why? Why a chicken? Oh, you know what? There's a thing called Wikipedia. Look it up, Steve. Oh, mm. that's why. But in the meantime, I drive around on the bike. There's another chicken. It's a different style. There's a thousand different styles of cement chicken, cement fighting rooster that you can buy and put on a shrine or simply put outside the doors of your house. So I'll have a file. I've got files in my computer for all kinds of different themes, all kinds of different trends ah, okay. that I notice. I get it. And then at some point, there's always a, 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 uh, a monologue, all right? One of the things I think about, I don't know if you're familiar with the show, it's called uh, Prairie Home Companion. It's been on the radio in the United States for a million years, a guy named Garrison Keeler. And he invented this town called Lake Wobegon in Minnesota, uh, very near to the Canadian border. And he's invented, he's done this, he's, he does a 30-minute monologue about the, the news from Lake Wobegon every Saturday, and he's done it since 1972, I think every single Saturday. And he just makes up stories about the people in this little made up town. And that's what I think about. And then the rest of the show, he'll have a musical act, he'll have a comedy act, he'll have a juggler, whatever. So that's what I do. But the, the core of each episode is Steve talking into the camera for about 10 minutes. Memoir. Because that's what I do. I do autobiography. Yeah, do it's memoir. very refreshing. It steps away from the vlogger style of, hey, we're on Bangla Road. Yo, here's where you I need to that. eat. Everything is very catered to the YouTube gods. So you're doing your own thing, which I, I think a lot of people, when they do watch, and I've read a few of your comments, that's it's refreshing. That's the best way Thank to you. explain it. Um, before we wrap, th wrap this up, we're almost there. I just had kind of one more question on... The content, there will be a day where in Turtle Beach and specifically where you live that you're going to run out of content unless you're some creative genius and you can keep pulling, you know, rabbits out of a hat. Do you see yourself moving further up the beach? Now, again, from where you live in Kaolack, you can pretty much follow that beach right up to Renong. Yeah. Would you see yourself hopping along every couple years or every well, first year? of all, Garrison Keeler has done a half hour on Lake Wobegon every single Saturday since 19... He hasn't run out of... You know, but to answer your question, the reason Turtle Beach, the reason I said it goes from the Saracen Bridge to Kaolak is so that I can go shoot in Kokloi, I can go shoot in Panga, I can shoot in Takwatung, I can shoot in uh, uh, Taplamu, uh, that's the army base, or the navy base that's got the turtle uh, uh, hatchery there. Uh, I can go 
farther afield. I've gone to Hot Yai. I did an episode about Hot Yai. This week, I'm doing my second episode about Phuket. Uh, you know, Turtle Beach is a state of mind. Mm-hmm. It goes with me wherever I go. And I think, pro- I'm not Garrison Keeler. I'm not as creative or as brilliant a mind as Garrison Keeler. So I probably can't ring. You know, my goal is, fif- my goal is 52 episodes. I am convinced well, they say, that I will get a year in Thailand. I made a deal. There was a night in 2003 I couldn't sleep. I was like three nights without sleep. I had a terrible, terrible history around my divorce of not sleeping. One night I'm awake on the edge of my bed and I'm scared of what I'm going to do because I'm frantic. I haven't slept for three days. I'm going nuts. I'm going to jump off a bridge. And I looked up at the ceiling and I don't believe in God, but I promised somebody, I said, look, I will stay here and do everything you need me to do to be a good father. But at the end of this, I get one year in Thailand. And I promised somebody, I don't believe in God, but I made a promise and I went right to sleep when I made that promise. So since 2003, I am convinced that I have to be okay with this dream lasting just a year because I made that promise. Now, I don't know if, you know, the third and final heart attack, the one they say is going to kill me. I don't know if it's going to be that or I have to go back to the States and get a tooth pulled and I decide, you know what, I'm done with Thailand. I'm just going to go back. Well, Whatever it is. Let's not look at it the pessimistic may- way. Maybe it's one year here and then you move to Cambodia. Maybe. Yeah. There could be go. that. Uh, though I don't, I don't think death is pessimistic. Uh, but uh, my point is that my goal is 52 episodes. I'm at episode 14 right now. I want to do this for a year to prove to myself that I can do it that Pete was right to put his faith in me and say publicly he thought I should have a, a YouTube channel, that Roy Bott was right to support me and encourage me, that you were right to support me and encourage me. If I can get 52 episodes, one every Friday, 20 minutes long, uh, I'll be happy with that. What happens after that, I don't know. Like I said, I've never done this before. It was never my plan to be any kind of content creator I would still like to write a book. You know, if God reaches down and bing, puts an idea in my head, I would love to write another book. But uh, at the moment, this is the goal, 52 episodes. And yeah, it won't. I don't think I'm creative enough or brilliant enough to make it all happen within the boundaries of the, to- the town of Turtle Beach. Uh, so yeah. I'm, I'm and, and, and further content, I don't know if we can talk about this on camera. I, uh, Tim Newton told me as well, you might be have something going <laughs> on there. Well, we were, yeah, we were supposed to shoot a pilot tomorrow morning. Uh, but Tim has a very exciting and, and, and action-filled life. So we, we can and look forward to that. It will, um, it's similar to the two Muppet characters. Um, that's how I think of it. I don't remember if I ever pitched that to Tim or if he was aware no, of Statler he, and Waldorf. I think Waldorf. he pinched that to me. He said that well, to me yeah, as well. Yeah, Statler and Waldorf. They're two of the, the Muppets. Uh, and there's these two old guys, and they, they're up in the balcony. The Muppet show was set in a theater which is one of the reasons I love that show, because it's all theater tech. It's what I studied in college, getting the curtain to go up and down on cue. Uh, and, and there's these two guys up in the, in the balcony, and they're dressed in tuxedos. There's the, they're there for the opera, and they comment on, on The Muppet Show, and they shout insults at the performers on stage, and they're just two cranky old men. So, yeah, we, we have thought... Uh, his show is a digest of the day's news. So we have two guys, and, and he'll pick three topics, three news items, and uh, Steve, what do you think of this? And then Steve speaks. And uh, Tim responds, and Steve speaks again. So far, uh, that is as far as the creative team have gone. 
with uh, with the concept of this show. I wonder if that derived from the apartment with uh, Walter Matthau and Jack Lemmon, those two characters. Perhaps I've always, I've they weren't in a balcony, right? but it's that but like dynamic. That, that dynamic. It's yeah. that dynamic. Okay, yeah, now sure. Before we end, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna shoot this to your camera in just a second, but. Let's see if we can get you off the cuff on this one. Now, on what I love about all your episodes, you always have a, an analogy, a quick little monologue at the end, or a joke. Oh. Is there anything, you, a joke you could share with us or something to the audience before we kick it back to you and you can plug your uh, content and let everyone know where they can find you? But I, I, if you have a joke we could end on, hit, em, hit, em, uh, I, hit that no, home run. I'm sorry. Okay, so you got to check it out. There's always something at the end. Um, whether it's a story, usually like a, an old, it'll be a Jewish joke. So <laughs> it can be, uh, when it hits, it takes a second yeah. to, to grasp, but it's delightful. So um, oh, just you. before we end, I'm going to shoot the camera over to Steve. And if you can just let the audience and everyone know now that you're on Instagram where they can find you and also on YouTube. Uh, yeah, I, uh, I have an Instagram channel. Uh, it is uh, uh, post. It is titled "Postcards from Turtle Beach." Uh, so far, I've posted one photo there because Instagram will not accept posts from a laptop. You have to do it on your phone, and I am 64 years old, and I don't have a clue how to do that. So, so far, uh, the, take a pass on the Instagram channel until I figure it out. But on YouTube, it is called "Postcards from Turtle Beach" as well. I think if you just search for Steve Ross, R O S S E. It will also take you there. Avoid the tuba player and like, subscribe, and share. And I appreciate your support. Perfect. Okay, well, that kind of wraps up another episode of Fruiting Body Podcast. Our cameras, they survived. Hans is probably tired as hell sitting on this uncomfortable. No, your chair is half decent. You're doing all right. Uh, don't forget to like, sub like subscribe, and share. Uh, if you share, I guess that really helps out the algorithm, but um, you can also subscribe or you know what? Or unsubscribe. Do whatever you want. Um, thanks a lot, Steve, for joining us. And that ends another episode. Thank you very much. I appreciate it.